Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Lynn Cody. Lynn is the author of eight books, including the novel The Antagonist, which was shortlisted for the 2011 Giller Prize, and the short story collection Hellgoing, which won the Giller Prize in 2013. Her most recent novel is Watching You Without Me, which was published by House of Anansi in 2019 and Knopf US in 2020. Publishers Weekly said that Watching You Without Me stands out for its incisive, bleakly humorous look at gullibility and the complexities of guilt. Lynn is also an accomplished TV writer who has worked on shows like Digstown and Orphan Black. Lynn and I talk about how winning the Giller did and didn't change her career and her perspective on her own writing, how writing for TV has become her main creative outlet and is in many ways a healthier and more rewarding one, and why she isn't 100% sure she will ever write another novel. We also talk very, very briefly about the scandal that her book Hellgoing played a very minor part in, so be forewarned. I want to start by putting something on the record, mm-hmm. which is, I feel like there are some books you read and they're like, eh, that's fine. And there's some books you read and they're like, that was really good. And then maybe six months, you can't quite remember anything about it. It doesn't really, you fully appreciate the craft and and the intelligence and the talent that went into it and the skill, but it just kind of flows through you as this good thing. And then there are certain books that are like, you read them, they're what I call the God damn it books, where you read it. And as you're reading it, you're going like, God damn it. Mm. Like, they're just so, there's something weirdly, they feel effortless. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, a lot of what effort went into it and they're, they're funny and they're smart. They just, they're doing something where you're like, God damn it. How did they pull that off? And I have to say, just to start by kissing your ass, which yeah, is that hell going is one of these books that I I I've reread multiple times and I keep wow. coming back to it and it's like every single time I'll read a couple of the stories and I'm like god damn it <laughs> um, and I want to just kind of start there mm-hmm. by the time hellgoing came out in in 2013 you had published a number of novels a number of short story collections all of them like extremely well received really good books uh um up for multiple awards, winning multiple awards. You'd been shortlisted for the Giller the year before. And yet it was this collection that won the Giller, which is somewhat the reverse of how that's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. supposed to be the the sort of like, um, it's supposed to be the serious novel, the serious weighty yeah. like doorstop novel with its serious pages. themes. Yeah, that mm-hmm. wins the novel. 
what were the expectations around that book when it was coming out? Were there, was there any sense, was there a sense of like, well, we'll put this out because it's good or like, no, this is, this is going to be the one. Either from you or your publisher. Either yeah. from you or Nancy. Um, it's, it's so funny you asked that about expectations because my expectations were genuinely nil, like to the point where I asked myself and then asked people around me, should I bother putting out a, um, a short story collection? And, you know, knowing that the, you know, the books that get attention and the books that tend to win the awards are the, the doorstopper novels that you referenced, um, I, I was genuinely not convinced my publisher would even want a short story collection for me. And I remember I called my, my editor who was like, she's, she was not, not in-house, she was a, a freelance editor, but you know, she still, she still knew the publisher very well. Um, and I just called her and I said, you know, what, what do you think? Do you think they would even want it? Should I just like go to a smaller publisher maybe or self-publisher, <laughs> what should I do? And uh, she's like, oh, no, no, you should, you should definitely, you should definitely send it. Um, so I did. Uh, and, but at the same time, like, like really after, you know, after you've, you've kicked around Canadian publishing for a while, you really, like, I really feel like I had any kind of um, expectations for what a short story collection could do, kind of, kind of beaten out of me. Um, so it's just like, this is, this is my quiet little collection that I'll put out between novels, maybe. And maybe I'm not even gonna write another novel, I don't know. At the time I, I felt really, um, I felt really like maybe I wouldn't. And uh, I, was, um, I was just getting into writing for television and I was finding that very, very fun and satisfying. Like I, I really liked the collaboration and I, you know, I was tired of, of sitting in my my basement office by myself for years on end <laughs> producing <laughs> producing fiction and I really I really needed a change and I really felt like you know as much as as writing novels gave me it was not giving me enough of, of what I needed um, creatively and socially um, and short stories are we're better for a lot of reasons and, and, and we should talk about that. But I'll just say like, so I, I had this collection and I thought this might be, this might be my swan song. This might be the, the last you know, book I publish. Who knows what's gonna happen, but I'll just put it out there and forget about it. Right. And, um, right. and I was, I started this program at the Canadian Film Center, really intensive TV writing program, really intensive thinking, you know, I, I have nothing else to distract me and I'll, I'll work, I'll do this, this work for these months. And of course the months were like Giller season and award season. And that became incredibly complicated. And all of a sudden I'm getting all this attention for my short story collection. Were you ever tempted to come to class carrying the prize, carrying the award and like in the dress that you wore to the ceremony, just putting it on the desk in front of you and like, it's it's so funny that year, like because um, you know once once you're in the TV world, you're you're pitching all the time, and pitching is like, man, if you think you get beaten up by Canadian publishing, try try Canadian TV. It's <laughs> an exercise in constant constant rejection, and everybody was like, just start with the Giller, just like whip out the prize, keep it in your bag, <laughs> plunk it down on the table, 
and say any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, here. you <laughs> might want to give me a lot of money to make a TV show. Yeah, as the jury said in their citation. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that again, you had even before that Giller Prize uh, was awarded. You had a certain status in in Canadian publishing. You had been up for the Giller and the GG and a number of the awards, but that obviously puts you. That's like the SNL hosting thing where you get the dinner jacket and you're now part of a certain elite club. What did that feel like? I mean, outside of the the TV work you were doing, in terms of your relationship to uh, uh, the weird Canadian publishing and book world, what did that feel like to suddenly be on this this level? Um, uh, weird. Um... I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to talk about in a way because it's like it is it is like having a dinner jacket and people see the dinner jacket and go, oh, the dinner jacket. But like it's like then you take the jacket off. Like it's still you. Yeah, you still yeah, have the mustard. You have like, you have mustard on your shirt and yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's not like you get a Maserati with the jacket or a, <laughs> Or you know, a house. It's <laughs> just like, oh, I, I got this jacket now, hubba hubba. Um, but I mean, and it, and and you get, um, you you know, you get to judge the Gillers, and that was that was actually kind of fun and interesting, even though it was stressful for all the reasons you can imagine. And you're mm -hmm. sort of like you you're sort of asked to participate in a lot of Giller stuff, and sometimes that can be okay. Um, but it's it's a funny thing, you know, because I, I've got such enormous gratitude uh, to this this award and this Canadian institution. Um, but at the, at the same time, it's like it's kind of tough to see how you know every all the things that used to kind of promote and support and buttress Canadian fiction has has kind of gone away, or it's all been kind of narrowed to this single point of like the prizes and the Giller Prize being the biggest one and um and it's such a it's such a funny world like it's so you know it's it's glamorous and it's it's moneyed because you know a lot of you know when, when you say elite like a lot of the Toronto elite meaning rich people <laughs> are, are of that world and they all go to the the Giller Awards and you you're rubbing shoulders with people you never would normally as an author and um they're, they're they're just from from a different echelon uh so it's for me it's just kind of a lot of a lot of cognitive dissonance around that but at the same time it's such a great thing it's such a great thing to have and you know it changes people's lives like I've genuinely seen it change people's lives even people who haven't won even people who've just been nominated like um like the year I judged, uh, David Demchuk had like a, a book that this is before Red X, um, that was like really weird, uh, quirky short stories that I'm convinced would never have gotten any kind of attention. Like it just wouldn't have caused a blip because it was a very small press and the, the stories had like photographs alongside of them and they were just, they were just strange. They just did not, you know, scream, you know, this is for a mainstream audience. Um, 
and it felt like such a valuable opportunity uh, for the Gillard judges to like say, oh, this is genuinely a book that we can bring to wider attention. Like we have an opportunity to do something really awesome here. So there's, you know, there's that aspect of it, which is great. That's kind of fascinating because, um, I mean, I used to work in, in book media. I used to work at Quill and Choir and um, I would always complain about the, the sort of Kremlinology surrounding the Giller Prize and the jury and how, you know, when the booker gets awarded, often the jurors will be very upfront about like, well, we didn't nominate that person because we hate that guy's books or that person's, you know, and then we love this book. And I really went for this book, but I got talked out of it. There's a whole sort of public discussion behind mm -hmm. it. Whereas I found the Giller was very, it has always been very Canadian in it's like, no, we just, we don't talk about these things. Mm -hmm. So I was always wondering like the intentions behind some of the picks mm -hmm. that get things that get long listed or previously just shortlisted. Are they on there because they're a consensus pick or because they are particular jurors favorites and we all know they're not going to be the winner, but we're putting them on the shortlist because it provides this attention yeah. or and is there, you know, picking from a field of books, of worthy books, well, that person has won before or has this internationally recognized career while this person getting on the shortlist will change that person's career yeah. in measurable ways. Was that some of this discussions when you were on the jury? Were there those like competing interests between whatever the best books of the year versus what will this actually mean to these particular books and authors? Well. I want to say every jury is different and I've, I've heard a lot of horror stories about various juries and people sure. with very clear agendas with respect to the various authors um, that felt feel a little nefarious but um, the jury my Giller jury was was really fantastic but I mean to varying degrees there's there's all of that you know there's horse trading there's taking the cultural moment into consideration there's and, and it feels you know sometimes you feel weird having these conversations or like you know and you're talking about you know authors who you know maybe they've already won a couple of times or maybe you know maybe there's just something about them that makes you feel like you know they they don't need this as, like, as much right. as this author might um and you just because you know because it's a, a safe space there everything's basically on the table and, and you can talk about it and you can say i feel weird and uncomfortable talking about this and maybe it's not legitimate but I'm going to articulate it anyway and if you you know if you feel like the people around you are are you know uh decent enough to kind of allow you you know allow you to be maybe wrong <laughs> or or politically incorrect or you know allow you to just say something that kind of you end up saying I'm going to I'm going to actually take that opinion back now uh then then that, that that's okay and I think that's probably why you know everybody pretty much keeps dumb about the process because it, it can it can be awkward and it's the kind of stuff where you know you know if people were to get a hold of a snippet of this conversation on twitter it would just they go ape shit right i mean i was part of a jury once where for a for a novel prize where i can say that part of the discussion was it seemed like all of the jury had different favorite books mm -hmm. and then there was just sort of one book that we all conceded was like our number two 
Yeah. Um, and, and part of the discussion was all of our favorite books felt really interesting and had really great things about them, but also had certain flaws mm -hmm. in them. Like it was a collection of short stories where eight out of the 12 stories are brilliant and four are kind of mm, filler. Yeah. And trying to balance that idea of, well, this has its higher higher highs than the all of our second choice yeah. but the second choice is clearly like consistently good so it the idea that one book just sort of pops out of the the crowd and that's clearly the best one yeah whereas it's these group of humans <laughs> in mm -hmm. a room trying to reconcile these interests is is a really odd one yeah well, especially when taste is such a big part of it, like you just realize how much subjectivity comes into play when you're in a room with like four other people and everybody's like, oh, I love this particular, you know, turn of phrase. And you're thinking like, oh, wow, I hate it. <laughs> polar, polar oppositions to, you know, various aspects of the book. And it really just makes you realize like, there is no objective, you know, qualification for good when it comes to literature. Like you absolutely to one thing and say that is absolutely hundred percent good. I want to move on from hell going, but I and I won't dwell on this aspect of it. But I want to note. I want to ask uh, one question about it, which is the Wikipedia entry for that book for that collection has two paragraphs. I don't know if you've seen it. Mm. The first paragraph is about the fact that it won the Giller. Yeah. The second paragraph, you can probably guess, is about the fact that Jean Gameshi referenced it, one of the stories in his public denial of being an absolute creep and a monster. Really? So 50% of the Wikipedia entry is about this awful person and awful uh, moment. So my question is, how badly do you want to edit that Wikipedia entry? Like, get in there and I just... I know about it. Thanks oh. a lot. <laughs> Uh, we'll move off it then. We'll we'll move no, on. No, that's okay. You know what I would say? It's like anything that keeps what he did in the public record is actually okay by me. I, I don't want it forgotten. That's a that's a perfect answer. Um, but we will move off that that yeah. awfulness. Um, you had mentioned like even in the expectations around that book and around that collection, and you were sort of feelings around your place in the publishing world. I mean, you were at the point where you might have just been persuaded to self-publish that book or, I don't know, go to Kinko's and print it up and give it to friends, mm -hmm. which is, you know, bonkers in my mind to think about. Um, you actually wrote something in another book that you published, which I have right here, oh. um, which was part of a lecture that you did mm -hmm. called Who Needs Books? Reading in the Digital Age. You did that in 2016. And in that, in that lecture, you say that as a literary writer, as a Canadian literary writer, and as a Canadian female literary writer, you had reconcil reconciled yourself earlier in your career to the likelihood that your audience would be small. Um, and as a sort of case in point, in the intro to that book, to that book with, that contains the lecture, um, Paul Kennedy says right off the top, he'd never actually read your books. Um, when you came to do the lecture, quite quite cheerfully, like, oh, I never oh, yeah. actually read this Lynn, Lynn Cody person. I hear good things. Yeah. 
to to Paul's credit, he then notes that he then read a ton of your stuff and thought you were brilliant as as a writer and as a person. Mm-hmm. But it does speak to this sort of odd position that you were occupying then and you kind of continue to occupy, I think, where you are winning the these major awards. Mm-hmm. You are considered, again, part of that dinner jacketed elite mm-hmm. because you've been on that award stage. But you're not one of the like household names right. that people think of, like Canadian writers. If you were to talk to someone in Australia, like name some Canadian writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you're obviously not alone in that position. I mean, that's all of Canadian writers, except for maybe three or four. Yeah, so yeah, there's much. no shame in that. Um, I want, what does that feel like in the sense of where you kind of fit in? And when you're bringing a new book to somebody, when you're coming out with a new book, does it feel like, well, obviously, I am the Giller-winning Lynn Cody. Or is there a sense of like, is there anybody out there? Like, or is it a, a a sea of Paul Kennedys who've never heard of me? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's just my sort of constitutional, you know, small town Eastern Canadian pessimism, but I tend to I tend to veer in my thoughts towards the the Paul Kennedys of the world and and feel very like I've I've always felt like an underdog and and I feel like I think after I won the Giller, it's like, okay, great, now I'm an underdog with the Giller. <laughs> it's like I'm never gonna shake this particular this mindset. Um and so, you know, every once in a while, you know, somebody, my husband or somebody will remind me, you know, you tell them you want a fucking Giller. Like quit quit being so hat in hand all the time. You know what I mean? If I'm going into a, a meeting or something. Um, and that is my, that it does tend to be my default. Um, but like at the same time, that belief gets reinforced a lot (laughs) because, you know, it it is a small audience, even like for, I mean, even, even successful, successful Canadian novelists who are household names, not a lot of households actually, like, it's like a small demographic of people who read Canadian fiction. so, so yeah, I can't even remember what the original question was, but I do, <laughs> I do feel like I, I, I have no confidence that my next book will be published. If I write another novel, I, I'm not sure anyone's going to want to publish it. Um, part of that is, like I said, my sort of constitutional sense of uh, my, my, you know, lack of worth, <laughs> but, which, which is, you know, neurotic uh, but it, another part of it is just like you know feeling I'm feeling kind of disconnected from the publishing industry things are changing a lot and they're changing fast um, and I feel like you know publishing has become very corporatized and they they want certain things um, so and and put on top of that I, I really don't know when I'm going to feel like writing a novel again so by the time I actually have a novel it might be five years from now and that might, and the, you know, what's publishing even going to be at that point? Well, I mean, you referenced the fact that you, you now work a lot in, in the TV world. And I mm-hmm. would say, thank God you've entered a creative industry where egos are not a problem and they're very supportive. <laughs> it's, there's no chance of you ever feeling crushed or yeah. Uh, yeah, I illegitimate. Yeah, I just out of bed every day. It's <laughs> fucking great. <laughs> in the world. Um, you've sort of anticipated another question I had which is um 
you know, I noted when I was kind of going through your 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 oeuvre um, that if you put it in terms of of years, there is a stretch of fifteen years between Strange Heaven and and Hell Going, mm -hmm. where you published four novels and two short story collections. You're in a number of anthologies. You edited one called Victory Meet. Um, since Hell Going, since Hell, you've published one novel. Mm -hmm. um which was watching you without me in mm -hmm. in 2019 has is this just a case of like life taking you elsewhere is it the tv work that has become more um the main part of your your work or i should say and slash or has your relationship to novel writing and fiction writing changed since that sort of very prolific uh first decade or so yeah, I think I think it's changed. I mean, it's all that stuff um, because working in TV is very is very absorbing and demanding of like all your creative faculties. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think my relationship to you know fiction writing has changed um, because for early in my in my career, you know, I thought. As, as a young naive writer, I thought I'm I'm going to make a living as as a fiction writer, um, and I had like sort of startling success with my first novel, in that it was nominated for the Governor General's Award, and we didn't have Beguiler back then, um, but because I was like a young first time novelist, it got me a lot of attention, um, and then I kind of rode that wave into a weird period in Canadian publishing where it was like kind of cool and sexy to be a Canadian novelist. This was like for five minutes <laughs> around <laughs> year 2000. I think I remember that it was a Thursday. Yeah, yeah, it was a Thursday. It was a hell of a day, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the, that, so then it felt like, okay, it's getting a lot of attention. So I better get my book of short stories out quickly. And I did um, because, you know, this was a body work I've been building up all the while before and after writing the novel um and that got a lot of attention uh and then um and then it's like okay i just gotta i just gotta keep this this streak going and i could get you know advances at that point i could get two book deals so it's like okay so i can live off of this money i was could get grants so it's like and you know after talking to a lot of a lot of more senior writers about how this was done People are like, yeah, you know, you, you can get provincial grants, you can get federal grants from Canada Council, you can you can teach here and there, you can like sort of cobble yourself a life together. And I was like, great. So bashing out the books. Um, and just what I found eventually was like, after I published Mean Boy, I could I could feel my publisher kind of cooling towards me. And it was because, <laughs> this is the thing, I insisted on writing about stuff that like, you know, if I was, was to pitch Mean Boy as a TV show, people would be like, what? It's about, it's about poets in the seventies in small town, New Brunswick. Huh? Right. Um, right. And that was kind of like, that was kind of how the publisher felt too. There, there were, I, I feel like everybody kind of was like, Where, what's the next strange heaven? Like, what's the next kind of thing about young girls and sex and stuff like that and drinking? And, um, 
and I just like, I just wanted to write the novels I wanted to write. And eventually I, I, I think I just started to realize like, that's not how you make a living in publishing by writing the novels you wanna write. That's how you, you know, achieve creative fulfillment, which is very much what I wanted to do. Um, so I started to get a sense of like, I probably can't keep this up. Like I can't keep sort of bashing out, you know, novels that are not necessarily crowd pleasers and expecting, you know, Penguin Random House to like come running, waving a big check. Like that, that's just not what's gonna happen. Right, right. So I think I got to a point where I was like, well, how do I, I just, what do I do? Like, do I, do I keep writing these novels and just kind of, you know, hoping that like, and this is what I find a lot of writers kind of get into this rut where it's like, this is going to be the big killer winner. This is going to be the big killer winner. I got to, you know, I want it. I got to keep winning it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It becomes really, it, it just starts to feel really anti-art for, for want of a better word. Um, and I know so many great writers, like great writers who are like just killing themselves, putting out book after book after book with this in the back of their heads, I think. And I didn't want to, I, I just realized I didn't want to do that. And around the time I realized that, I started to really appreciate the short story um, because the sh short story just has none of those expectations on it. You're not going to make a living off of it. You're not going to win the Giller with it normally <laughs> in, in a <laughs> situation. Um, and, you know, almost nobody is going to read it. <laughs> and there's, there's an incredible freedom to that. Uh, and I just started to feel like this is where I can do my best and, and most satisfying work, I think, when I just don't feel the weight of these expectations to like be, be a crowd pleaser and win awards and make a living. Like if you take all that away, it's just the work. It, this is starting to sound very high-minded, I really. <laughs> but um, that, that just started to feel really good to me. And when I discovered TV, I realized, you know, this can be the craft. Like this is where I can get my my collaboration rocks off and my, you know, this is where I can start, I, I can take in considerations of crowd pleasing because that's all TV is. Like it's it's all mm -hmm. about pleasing the crowd. And so like I'm gonna get good at that in this genre. And I'm gonna I'm gonna learn the structure and I'm gonna learn all the all the tropes and um and that way like sort of the you know my my need to be a journeyman can be satisfied through this work but when I want to be an artist I can go over here and write a short story and satisfy myself so it's like because tv is very much about you you, you want to satisfy yourself but you got to satisfy 50 other people too before it even you know before it even is shown to the public at large um, and so as long as you're getting paid for that work that's fine like people can note me to death People can, you know, say the stupidest things to me, like your your strong female character should be like, you know, a lumberjack male. <laughs> Whatever they want to see me, as long as I'm getting paid for it, that's fine. I, I'll be the journeyman. I, I get satisfaction in that, you know. Um, but if if with short stories, like none of that applies. I don't have to please anybody but myself. Right. It would be weird to be noted to death for 
short stories where you're yeah. like, what's the advance on this again? And uh, what, who's going to be? Yeah. I actually spoke about this to uh, on another episode of this podcast with, with um, Alex Olin, who, who also goes back and forth between novels and short stories and, and ultimately says she considers herself more of a short story writer than a novel. And she's more proud of her short stories. And we talk about that idea of what you just said, about the freedom of like, well, if nobody's watching, if no one's paying attention, no one, like this isn't this isn't my living. Yeah. Why would why wouldn't I do what I want? Why yeah. wouldn't I just give myself the freedom to because there's no one step I can take to then make it a a Giller winner or like I have no control over that. So why even pretend? Mm -hmm. And I think what I also realized around the time of Mean Boy, I guess, was, you know, the way I had been thinking like in my the early part of my career, which is, you know, I'm gonna be the next Margaret Atwood, I'm gonna be the next Alison Monroe, whatever. It's like, that's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. That's like a lot of pressure to put on yourself because there's only there's only one of each of them. And they've achieved the kind of success that like like only they have achieved, really. So I just realized that's 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 not fun. Like that, I'm I'm not gonna derive enjoyment out of my work if I'm constantly you know, I've got these two greats hovering over here. Right. <laughs> I, I got to cut it out and just like take pleasure in the work. When you were a kid, your family experienced bankruptcy and experienced a lot of like financial pressures. And my sort of pop psychology take on that would, was that that would have a lasting effect on your approach to work Mm. and what that means and it also relates to another conversation I had on this podcast with um Alicia Elliott mm -hmm. where she talked about putting her first book together a collection of essays and she had no idea for example that you could just blow through a manuscript deadline mm -hmm. she just saw it as like I'm I'm a mom I'm I've been working for years at Starbucks like you just have to get stuff done yeah and if that's my deadline I've got to like you know, destroy myself to hit that deadline. Mm -hmm. And only later did someone say like, you know, you can just ask for an extension, like nobody <laughs> hits their deadlines. Yeah. And that was a revelation because in her mind, it was work. You've got to get work done. Yeah. yeah. Has that been a thread in terms of your career as well? It's like, there's this, there's this creative thing that I do, but it's also work. Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's always, it's always been jumbled for me. Like, and I was confused about it because um, it was never like being a writer was never growing up. It wasn't something that was taken seriously um, by my family uh, and the people, you know, I grew up around. Um, and what, you know, what my family knew about art and artists is like the, the these people are layabouts. They, they don't work. They, <laughs> They just kind of lounge and, <laughs> and come up with come up with pretentious thoughts, um, and so I think on some level I you know I believed that even as I wanted to be that it's like oh that sounds pretty good I can lounge and be pretentious and, and read books, um, and but and yet on the other hand you know I ha had all this shame about that you know I I was uh, oh now I'm really about I'm uh, I'm not I'm not a serious person you know. Um, so I think I always really struggled with those two sides of my personality because I, I was always I was very really interested in reading like biographies of writers and um, you know and that's that's a lot of that is what Mean Boy was about just like sort of glamorizing uh, writers in your head and imagining their 
their sexy debauched lives and thinking that that's that's what my life is probably going to be like too um and so uh i you know i found that hard to reconcile for a long time like it was like i i need to be a serious person and i need to make money like i can't i can't just not make money like some people um but at the same time artists are supposed to live and they're supposed to not have any you know, strictures on them and they're supposed to be free and go to Paris and stuff. Uh, and, and so I do think, yeah, like just kind of finally coming to the realization that it's really, it, you just gotta be pragmatic. <laughs> you gotta be pragmatic in life. And, and uh, if, you know, not a lot of people are able to um, make a living as artists and you do find you know, other ways to do it. You, you find teaching or editing or all the millions of things I've done to make money over the years. Um, and you just, you just got to figure out, you know, what works best for you while feeling like you're not compromising your integrity. I wonder too, if after about the 50th or 60th book launch you went to, mm -hmm. where you had like the bad wine and the, the stale pita with the, the hummus. Yeah, with the hummus. And it starts to sink in like maybe this whole writing life isn't as sexy and as uh, exciting as I had perceived yeah, it when I was glamour. growing up. Yeah, I'm supposed to be running around Paris right now. And here I am glamour, man. standing at the back of a bookstore with my arms folded, you know, Awkward I feel <laughs> exactly talking about advances. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I, I had a similar thing with my family, you know, like a working class family, small town mm -hmm. and no sense of like artist. But I feel like it was weirdly opposite in that my mother's conception of an artist was like Harry Belafonte. Oh, so wow. it's like if you're going to go into show business, that's what you do. If you're going into some creative field. Yeah. You've got to be big and have like Happy. a big stage and big and open. And like so the idea of doing something where you're not doing that just felt perverse right. not that you were being pretentious or something yeah. it was just like why are you not harry belafonte oh that, that's great that's, <laughs> aren't you nathan i i'm still that's working amazing. my way there well now that he's dead i feel like i can move into that spot yeah, there's, a, there's a slot for you now the spot is open <laughs> <laughs> um i have to come back to something you said which is terrifically uh disturbing and depressing which is Sure. You said when you come, when, I'm glad you did say when, not if, mm -hmm. I believe I'm going to have to check the audio, but when you come to write another novel, mm -hmm. you said that could be five, five years, could be even further. Mm -hmm. Where, does that weigh on you at all? Does that sit on you like there has to be one written or it is the sort of creative mojo being fulfilled with all the massive amounts of TV work you're doing and other work? Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't, you know, every once in a while, I think, you know, I probably said when, because I don't want to give up on the idea. Um, I would like to write another novel. And I sort of remember the moments from novel writing where I just felt like this is the greatest, you know what I mean? When you're in the middle of a novel and sure. It's just you're 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 just in the world and you're you're galloping forward and it, it's just alive all around you. Like I I remember those moments fondly and I would like to get back to them one day. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like it's 
for me, it's 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 about making a living and it's about um, you know creative fulfillment. And I feel like I've I've got those two things at the moment, however precarious they might be, and I, I will always have them with short fiction and um, you know the the low stakes of of short fiction um, feels feel really good to me right now. Like I'm I'm enjoying that space and enjoying you know getting them published where I can I had a piece in the walrus a while back oh that's right yeah a few months ago and that was just like a really great process um so so yeah so I just feel like you know I'm I'm not I'm not writing off the possibility that I might write another novel but I don't necessarily feel like I have to and I don't feel like it would at all be a tragedy if I didn't well I have to say even if the next book is a collection of short stories and that you're continuing to write short stories, which is amazing. Uh, I am looking forward to reading it. I'm looking forward to getting the, I guess it might even be just a photocopied edition from Staples <laughs> or something. Sirlock's <laughs> Sirlock's bound. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it and thinking the whole time, God damn it. <laughs> that can be your one word review. That's right. <laughs> What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.